Can you believe it? Writer's block. It happens to all of us. I woke up at 5 this morning and set up shop at the keyboard, but struggled for hours to move beyond the title, Nobody Drink the Kool-Aid. Mostly, I just sat here thinking about the temperature in Guana this time of year, and I learned something. It's apparently never sweater weather in Guana. If the title confuses you, then know that I mean precisely what I say. The world is a stage, the official narrative is a script, and Jim Jones takes the icing on the cake. To further clarify, somebody may have actually drunk Kool-Aid in Jamestown, but that is not to say that anybody expired from doing so. Indigestion, maybe, but dead, no. The media is designed in such a way as to keep us emotionally invested in actors, all of whom are simply playing their respective role in a televised production. Our theme word for the day is illusion. His official narrative hits every obvious stride, painfully so, just as we would expect from someone whose very existence was chosen as a psyop. Before this is over, you will see how Jim Jones and the curious case of the Kool-Aid would simply not work had it not been for his symbiotic relationship with the media. Eventually, you watch enough movies to recognize a Woody Allen, Wes Anderson, Quentin Tarantino, Christopher Nolan, Terrence Malick, or M. Night Shyamalan production when you stumble upon one. It's like that with Intel. You begin to familiarize yourself with one staged hoax, and then another, and then another, until soon enough you pull back and realize, to your astonishment, that we're living in a Baskin-Robbins ice cream parlor, and everything we're fed, all 31 flavors, is a staged production in one way or another. In other news, this will be the last of four episodes detailing the life of Colonel Lewis West. As you will recall, the whole thing started in the prison cell of Lee Harvey Oswald's killer, Jack Ruby. Mostly, we have been observing the popsicle sticks and glue of the MK Ultra program via the life of West to see how everything holds together. Not so well. Sure, Jim Jones circles the drain of the MK Ultra program, but he's still an actor. Time and again, this point has been established, and it tells us something. Mind control is not necessarily directed upon a few select individuals, but the American people. Cyanide was passed around in paper cups alright, but only as predictive programming. The actual people who ingested the poison were the gullible masses, believing the media would never lie to them about something like that. Jonestown is analogous for the human condition. The mere fact that Jones established a perfect partnership with politicians on the local and national level, and seemingly out of thin air, tells us who he truly was. Jones was a spook. Let's get to it then. At the Wikipedia, we are told that Jones grew up in a shack without plumbing. Of course he did. His father was in the KKK. Of course he was. From an early age, Jones was a ferocious reader of Stalin, Marx, Mayo, Gandhi, and Hitler. And why wouldn't he? I mean, if I were a pubescent 12-year-old being groomed for the upcoming PSYOP of the decade while living in a hick house without plumbing, I'd probably read from successful intel projects as well. You know, get to know my spook forefathers, if not to simply polish my reading skills. Childhood acquaintances recalled him as a really weird kid who was obsessed with religion and death. Oh dear, were these the children of nearby KKK households all drinking from the same water cooler? We are not told. But if so, 
then talk about calling the kettle black. They furthermore allege that he frequently held funerals for small animals on his parents' property and that he once killed a cat with a knife. The point being made here is that the life of Jim Jones is like poetry in that it rhymes. Little Jimmy is already plotting the eventual demise of some 900 people. Are you curious how many people actually died? You might want to hold on to something. 911. There's that number again. We are then expected to believe that Jones refused to speak with his KKK father for years on the basis that he was soundly rejected for attempting to bring one of his black friends over to the house. That's rich. And yet, little Jimmy studied Adolf Hitler and Father Divine to learn how to manipulate members of the cult which he hoped to create? The fact of the matter is, if the official narrative is anything to go by and not completely invented, he was probably recruited by Intel through the KKK. As early as 1951, a 20-year-old Jones began attending gatherings of the Communist Party USA in Indianapolis. Difficult to tell, but it is possible that he was recruited there, though I doubt it. We are told that Jones was harassed by the FBI during the McCarthy hearings and that his mother, who attended one meeting focusing on Paul Robeson, was harassed in front of her co-workers. The McCarthy hearings was a ridiculous intel production, and we're talking top shelf stuff, while Paul Robeson, a black football player, proved to be yet another pimped out actor akin to OJ, playing the part of the naughty communist rather than the murderer. Another dog and pony show was the trial of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, American citizens who were convicted of spying on behalf of the Soviet Union. Somehow we are expected to believe that the Rosenbergs are an important element of Jim Jones' biography when the fact of the matter is, Intel often likes to direct us to their own productions, by which Julius and Ethel Rosenberg are no exception. And by the way, high school US history class already made the connection. The McCarthy hearings was just another sequel to the Salem witch trials, hoax and hoaxer. If you're paying attention, Jones is about to give it all away. He is intel. Frustrated at the American government's treatment of accused communists during the McCarthy movie, Jones later said that he'd asked himself, how can I demonstrate my Marxism? The thought was, infiltrate the church. We have an admission on the Wikipedia telling us how it's done but only on the surface level. Sure, Intel infiltrates, but mostly they just create. Jones started his own congregation in 1955. See what I mean? Jones infiltrated, but he also created. Jonestown is simply a parody for the continuation of Genesis chapters four through six in the human experience. The children of Cain still run everything. Genesis makes it so clear and yet you have to wonder how many people who were alive in pre-Diluvian times actually figured that out. My guess is not many. Presently, Wiki doesn't expect you to put two and two together because, almost in the next breath, we come to learn that Jones was embraced by civic leaders from the very beginning. And that is because the life of Jim Jones was only as natural as a three-legged race. As early as 1960, Indianapolis Mayor Charles Boswell appointed Jones to be director of the Human Rights Commission, something the CIA very likely had their hands in. Smoke and mirrors, people. Today, we're discovering all sorts of fun facts. For example, the People's Temple received its name from their very first location in Indianapolis. 
a certain Rabbi Maurice Davis sold the temple to Jones on remarkably generous terms. From this title alone, we can easily deduce that Rabbi Davis was a Jew. If my mentioning Davis's Jewry bothers you, then might I remind you that I expose far more Goyim than Ashkenazi, though I place an even greater emphasis upon the children of Cain. This should simultaneously designate me an anti-Gentile and an anti-Cainite as well as a Sethite separatist. But Zionism doesn't expect you to use logic. And besides, I am simply pointing out the fact that a Jew is responsible for giving an infiltrator a leg up. Don't shoot the messenger. Oh fine, just leave a naughty note in the comment section using all caps and a lot of exclamation points. I decided to take a closer look at Davis and the short of his biography is as follows. In 1952, Davis founded the Kentucky Committee on Desegregation. During the 60s, he walked with Martin Luther King Jr. in Alabama and on numerous Selma to Montgomery marches, and was ultimately appointed to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission by President Lyndon B. Johnson. After members of his congregation defected from Judaism to join the Unification Church, oh dear, Davis was inspired to become a prominent anti-cult activist, an occasional deprogrammer, and an associate of Dr. Hardet Satil. Already, we have followed the breadcrumbs laid out for us and come around full circle. Rabbi Maurice Davis and Dr. Hardat Satil were bookends to the People's Temple and Jonestown. Satil was yet another anti-cult activist whose professional interests were homicide, suicide, and the behavior of animals in electromagnetic fields. And here's some irony for you. Anti-cult activists weren't simply raising public awareness of cults. They were put in place for the purposes of creating them. First consider that Sagdil was one of the few civilians brought into Guana. There were other quote-unquote civilians on the premises, but as we shall come to find, they were tornado-sounding spooks. Within hours of his arrival at Georgetown, Sagdil began giving interviews to the international press. Jim Jones, he said in one such statement, was a genius of mind control, a master. He knew exactly what he was doing. I have never seen anything like this. But the jungle, the isolation, gave him absolute control. How Sagdil was able to come to such investigative conclusions, and in so little a time, is unimportant when we recognize that he was there simply to spin the story. Do me a favor and repeat Sagdil's entire quote to the press, exchanging Jim Jones for intel. Better yet, I'll do it for you follow along. Intel, he said, is a genius of mind control, a master. They know exactly what they're doing. I have never seen anything like this. But the jungle, the isolation, gives them absolute control. Did you catch that? Perhaps not. You tell me. Here, let's go over that last line one more time. The jungle, the isolation, gives Intel absolute control. He's describing a movie set, like Pyongyang or The Truman Show. Sagdil has just given away the very reason why Jim Jones made the move to Guana and not Salt Lake City. In order to pull off their latest production and convince the world that some 900 people, 911, had drunk the Kool-Aid, they couldn't chance the uninitiated snooping around on set and ruining everything. 
If you tell me that Jones only made the move to Jonestown because the media had turned on him, wait, why was the media broadcasting Jones to the world in the first place? I will once again remind you that Jimmy Jones in The Curious Case of the Kool-Aid would simply not work had it not been for his symbiotic relationship already established with the media and politicians. It was after a return trip from Brazil in December 1963, within weeks of the Kennedy assassination hoax, that Jones explained to his Indiana congregation how the world would be engulfed by nuclear war. Apparently, the date was set for July 15, 1967, the Summer of Love. This would apparently lead to a new socialist Eden on Earth. You may recall that Intel Project Charlie Manson had a very similar message. The Jonestown narrative is already being foreshadowed. This tells us that his grand finale on the world stage was already scripted, even if Chedi Jagan International Airport in Georgetown, a former World War II Air Force base, had not been selected for the going in and out of the camp. How San Francisco could ever prove safer than Indianapolis in a nuclear war is beyond me. But we are not expected to follow logic here, as that is not the point of the Jonestown PSYOP. Also, we are expected to believe that Jones was successful in convincing his congregation to make the move across the country some 2,300 miles to Redwood Valley, California, near the city of Ukiah, more foreshadowing, when the truth is that he needed to set up shop near the Intel project that was San Francisco, where entire cable car trolley loads of spooks could audition. Within five years of moving to California, the temple experienced a period of exponential growth. Another ridiculous claim, opening up new branches in San Francisco, San Fernando, and Los Angeles. His decision to move the temple's headquarters to San Francisco is explained to us in that the city was a major center for radical protest movements. Wink wink. We are next told that Jones became influential in San Francisco politics even more so than his political handshakes in Indianapolis, culminating in the temple's instrumental role in George Moscone's mayoral victory in 1975. Right. And who was Moscone's supervisor but Harvey Milk? You may know precisely where I'm going with this, but if not, you'll have to wait a little longer. Moscone subsequently appointed Jones as the chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority Commission because why wouldn't he? More smoke and mirrors. Soon after his final act at Jonestown, Temple members revealed to the New York Times that Jones arranged for busloads of members to be brought in from Redwood Valley to San Francisco to vote in the mayoral election, despite not being registered, while another former member claimed Jones swayed elections. Sure he did. FYI, the CIA loves dropping exclusives into the lap of the New York Times, often for the purposes of spreading their latest PSYOP, but sometimes simply to leak intel. What this tells us is that intel, playing the role of easily deceived sheep via temple members, worked with a CIA-owned media publication to cook up a modern taste of Americana, and it reeks of shellfish and pork. Another common theme in the ongoing PSYOP is the corruption of the American vote or the fact that your vote is being stolen from you. We have most recently seen this play out in the 2020 Trump-Biden election. Americans voted for Trump, but the deep state stole the election from them. It's all done to reinforce the idea into your mind that your vote actually matters. We are seeing every possible angle being hammered out in the Jones PSYOP, and there's more. 
Prior to leaving San Francisco, Jones claimed to have bribed Moscone with sexual favors from Temple members, including one who was underaged. Jim Jones Jr. later remembered, emphasis is my own, how Moscone frequented Temple parties with a cocktail in his hand and doing some ass-grabbing. When in Rome, you should be able to quickly deduce that we're not dealing with your typical church get-together. What kind of sick church service was this that involved cocktails and ass-grabbing? The answer is, not one single Christian denomination under the umbrella of Roman Catholicism. It should be noted that, sometime during the 60s, Jones had already disclosed that his gospel, what he then called the social gospel, was in fact communist in nature. It would later be referred to as apostolic socialism. It was Jim Jones' role to show America the folly of parting with Rome and any of its pet projects, like Zionism. As part of his ongoing sermons, Jones taught that those who remained drugged with the opiate of religion had to be brought to enlightenment. Socialism. Here's another quote, apparently a Jones original. If you're born in capitalist America, racist America, fascist America, then you're born in sin. But if you're born in socialism, you're not born in sin. Cue stars and stripes forever. By the 1970s, Jones had declared Christianity a flyaway religion, furthermore denouncing a sky god who was no god at all. Is he getting this from a John Lennon song? We are not told. But Jimmy and Charlie were definitely reading from the same playbook. He famously slammed the Bible on the table, yelling, I've got to destroy this paper idol. And in one sermon, Jones said, you're going to help yourself or you'll get no help. There's only one hope of glory. That's within you. Nobody's going to come out of the sky. There's no heaven up there. We'll have to make heaven down here. Former temple member Hugh Fortson Jr. quoted him as saying, what you need to believe in is what you can see. If you see me as your friend, I'll be your friend. As you see me as your father, I'll be your father. For those of you that don't have a father, if you see me as your savior, I'll be your savior. If you see me as your God, I'll be your God. Jones then went on, in one sermon or another, to proclaim himself the reincarnation of Lenin, Gandhi, Jesus, Father Divine, and the Buddha, while simultaneously telling the press that he was an agnostic or an atheist. Finally, those adolescent reeds, sitting in a hick house without plumbing, came to some use. What does this tell us? It's simple, really. Only a congregation filled with hired plants who prefer a little butt-pinching over cocktails would put up with sermons like that. Intel always likes to rub the little details in our faces. His temple members regularly practice suicides. Sure, how very charismatic of them. No wonder why people flock to him. And as if to suspend our own disbelief, they didn't even make an effort to disguise how bogus Jones' healings were, like the regurgitated chicken livers doubling as a tumor shed from a cancer patient, or the temple secretaries dressed up as old women, and not to overlook the same woman rising from her wheelchair on different nights of the week. It's all purposely documented. The weekly take from offerings and healing services was 15,000 to 25,000 in Los Angeles, and 8,000 to 12,000 in San Francisco. Who was dropping money into plates but spooks? So getting back to San Francisco Mayor George Moscone, 
Moscone arranged a private meeting between Jones and vice presidential candidate Walter Mondale on his campaign plane only days before the 1976 election. Mondale then went on to publicly praise the temple, uh-huh, as if that's not suspicious. But it gets better. As if the script hasn't already outed itself, the Wikipedia immediately informs us that First Lady Rosalind Carter met with Jones on multiple occasions, corresponded with him about Cuba, wait, what? And spoke with him at the grand opening of the San Francisco headquarters, where he received louder applause than she did. If you're trying to figure out why Mrs. Carter was feeding intel to a communist about communist Cuba, then you are attempting to make sense of a story which is never intended to be rational, but only to feed your cognitive dissonance. You'd think a guy who publicly denounced the Bible, accused everyone of living in sin who didn't repent of being born in America or capitalism, and claimed to be the reincarnation of any number of ascended masters would be bad for business. And it was. The Carters apparently did their best to take a dump on evangelicalism via splendid gaslighting techniques. It was the 1970s. You had to be there. Christians despised Carter, quickly turning from a love-to-hate relationship, and in as little as four years, without always being able to put their finger on it. Jimmy Carter's interview with Playboy magazine was just one instance of dialing up the gaslight. And if you took the time to read my paper or listen to the episode on the JFK assassination hoax, then you may recall the ending. I won't give it away here, but the point of it is this. The Georgian peanut farmer was selected as president in order to castrate Camelot-era Democrats. Again, if you read the paper, then you'll know what I mean by that. Actors slash politicians surrounded the atheist agnostic, reincarnated Lenin Ghani Jesus Father Divine Buddha, healing huckster of a communist congregation or whatever, and they publicly applauded him. Even if you refuse to acknowledge the world as a stage, and that we might as well be in Baskin Robbins, trying all 31 flavors and coming to the conclusion that every spoonful is still ice cream, you should at least be taking a look at the swinging endorsement of those politicians and then asking yourself by this point, how is that even possible? Still not convinced? Let's look at a few more. The Wikipedia writes, in September 1976, California Assemblyman Willie Brown served as master of ceremonies at a large testimonial dinner for Jones, attended by Governor Jerry Brown and Lieutenant Governor Mervyn Dimely. At that dinner, Brown touted Jones as what you should see every day when you look in the mirror, and said he was a combination of Martin Luther King Jr., Angela Davis, Albert Einstein, and Mayo. Talk about giving the guy's ego a rub. How did Jones even end up getting a testimonial dinner with the governor of California? The gears were certainly turning in 1976. We are only two years away from the faked Kool-Aid ceremony, and the American consciousness needs to be made aware of who the San Franciscan preacher is. Intel did the exact same thing with Manson in the months leading up to the Sharon Tate murders, via notable mentions from the rock musicians of Laurel Canyon. But Jones is a hundred times magnified, and it all serves a purpose. More castration. If you gave Rosalind Carter the benefit of the doubt by attempting to convince yourself that she flew out to Jones Temple in San Francisco for the purposes of public endorsement and Cuba talk, without ever once taking the time to familiarize herself with his message, 
then you'll want to take note of the fact that California Governor Jerry Brown is here publicly comparing Jones with a Chinese communist leader. That was not by accident. Jones spoke with publisher Carlton Goodlett of the San Francisco Sun Reporter, expressing his remorse over not being able to travel to socialist countries such as the People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union, speculating that he could be chief dairyman of the USSR. But that is not all that he is being compared to here. Jones is a white guy being identified with two black people, MLKJ and Angela Davis. Interesting, since Angela Davis held private audience in Jones' apartment. Never mind the fact that any such comparison would crucify someone in the 21st century. What Brown is doing is planting seeds. He's informing media guzzlers regarding an intended target of the PSYOP, and that is black people. Part of the Jonestown myth revolves around the San Franciscan black population who reportedly love Jim Jones. Apparently, 75% of those who drank the Kool-Aid in Jonestown were black. Mostly women. Black women. A better way to put this is black actors in his congregation, as well as those within the political ranks, convinced America that he was loved by blacks in a time when many felt the Rothschild-sponsored civil rights movement had died with the assassination of MLKJ in 1968, matched with the FBI's COINTOPRO assault against Black Panthers. COINTOPRO is an acronym for Counterintelligence Program, as in Counterintel for the Black Panthers Intel Project. The Nation of Islam's rift with Jones was just another clever Intel tie-in to their already overbloated plot. Spooks pimp black brothers out to our masters all the time. It's a classic plantation technique for creating the illusion of personal advancement. Slavery is set up that way. What this did is, it allowed Jones to speak, and I quote, at a huge rally in the Los Angeles Convention Center that was attended by many of his closest political acquaintances, hoping to close the rift between the two groups. Jones' own success needed to be sold as organic, but there is nothing organic about that. Even the homosexual psyop is brought into the Jones narrative because Intel was pulling out all the stops. Harvey Milk, uh-huh, gay activist and San Franciscan Mayor George Moscone's right-hand man, Harvey Got Milk. As if Jones' message couldn't get any more wackadoodle towards the people we are expected to believe fill the pews of his communist congregation, ex-Temple member Joyce Houston had this to say. Jim said that all of us were homosexuals. Everyone except him. He was the only heterosexual on the planet. And that the women were all lesbians. The guys were all gay. And so anyone who showed an interest in sex was just compensating. In the days after the Jonestown Massacre, ex-Temple member Tim Carter told the New York Times that Jones had open-ranging rights with every married woman. He told their husbands that he only did it to help the women. Ex-Temple member Jerry Parks, who had apparently turned over his home and everything he owned in California to the People's Temple, said in the same article that Jim Jones was the only heterosexual among them. What this means is, he could have sex with other men without being tagged a bisexual. By the way, those wives would then go around bragging that Jones was the best sex they'd ever had. This was all done, Tim Carter adds, to emasculate the men of Jonestown. If Jones was set up in such a way as to derail the civil rights movement and the LGBTQ agenda, and we know Mayor Muscone was pinching cheeks with a cocktail in his hand, 
then why was gay activist Harvey Milk holding political rallies at the temple? The answer to that is simple. I'll explain in a moment, but you already know the answer. After one such visit, Milk wrote to Jones, Reverend Jim, it may take me many a day to come back down from the high that I reached today. I found something dear today. I found a sense of being that makes up for all the hours and energy placed in a fight. I found what you wanted me to find. I shall be back, for I can never leave. On November 27, 1978, only days after the November 18th Jonestown hoax, it was future San Franciscan mayor and California senator Diane Feinstein who heard the gunshots and called the police. It was she who found Milk face down on the floor, shot five times, including twice in the head. Mayor Moscone was found dead in the other room, and it was all a hoax. George Moscone was only playing the part of the mayor, while Harvey Milk was only playing the part of the gay activist. Kind of like Jim Jones playing the part of a heterosexual. One event exposes the other. If you haven't figured this out already, our slave masters have long utilized the gay agenda, using the media, politics, and the arts as psychological operations to push it forward into the forefront of our thinking, induce behavioral modification, destabilize humanity, create dependence upon the beast government, deconstruct society before building it up again, that sort of thing, destroy everything if need be. The answer is that Milk was another actor. Here is something else I learned along the way. Jones was given the Martin Luther King Humanitarian Award in 1977, as if that's not an obvious setup. We are now within eyesight of the Jonestown suicides. He was given the award by Cecil Williams, a black reverend in the United Methodist Church. I decided to look into Williams' wiki page. It's rather short and plays out precisely as I would expect of a character actor. Here we go. We first read that he became the pastor of Glide Memorial Church in San Francisco in 1963. No surprise, since agents were arriving in mass numbers to the Bay City at that very time. He then founded the Council on Religion and the Homosexual the following year, whereby he aimed to blend the civil rights movement with LGBTQ, as if that's not at all suspicious. Isn't that what Jim Jones did? Pretty much, except that here, Agent Williams laid the groundwork. He hosted political rallies involving Angela Davis and the Black Panthers, but also Bill Cosby and Billy Graham. And get this, the Wikipedia further states, when Patty Hearst was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army, Williams attempted to negotiate a deal for her release. Right, every person, council, and organization just mentioned were either spooks or spook-led. Do you see how all these intel projects are interconnected? Eventually, you watch enough movies to know that George Clooney, Cary Grant, Clint Eastwood, Morgan Freeman, John Wayne, Audrey Hepburn, and Meryl Streep are all the same people ultimately playing the same tired part, but in different productions. That may sound like a no-duh statement to you, but that is how the world beyond the screen actually works. Personality actors like Cecil Williams are often hired for different roles in ongoing intel projects. Let us recap. Jim Jones is forging relationships with Harvey Milk, George Moscone, Jerry Brown, Cecil Williams, Angela Davis, Walter Mondale, and the Carters. All of these movable chess pieces aforementioned were tied together by intel, but made known to us by the press. You might think, somewhere along the way, 
then an innocent, hardworking newspaper man would start recognizing actors entering and exiting the stage and begin to connect the pieces. But no. Quite contrarily, the motionless plane is a globular theater, and they know it. They don't want you thinking about the performance witchcraft at all. Sure, there are real pastors and real humanitarians, certainly real people in San Francisco, but the press isn't concerned with them so much as casting the spell. It is the job of the media to pinpoint intel projects and then sell them to us as something legitimate, organic, evolutionary even, perhaps even drop intel as part of their investigation. Wiki writes their articles much as a trapeze artist might swing around under the high top. It's all a clown show, but it also takes a dedicated effort keeping the lie alive while blinding us to the fact that they're the conductor stoking the engine and blowing the whistle of the magic choo-choo train. Isn't it fun watching the official narrative melt like a candy bar on the dashboard of your car during the heat of a sweltering summer day? After a while, you will no longer acknowledge the beautiful rhythmic symphony, and like me, all you'll hear is a barking seal thumbing its nose against the rubber of a few measly bugle horns. Here at the Unexpected Cosmology, we're all about the analogies. I have just given you much to think about. Moving on, the Wikipedia claims, Jones also forged alliances with key columnists and others at the San Francisco Chronicle and other press outlets. Of course he did. And apparently, it was all going well until San Francisco's Chronicle reporter Marshall Kilduff wanted to write an expose on Jones, which included allegations by paid actors, scratch that, former Temple members, that they were physically, emotionally, and sexually abused by the big guy. Kilduff, however, encountered so much resistance from his contemporaries, or so we're told, that he had to drop his story in the lap of New West magazine. It was the summer of 1977. The world was going gaga for Star Wars. By this time, Jones had already started building Jonestown, formerly known as the People's Temple Agricultural Project, several years earlier as a means to create a socialist paradise, but we know the real reason. Wiki adds, it was conceived as a sanctuary from the media scrutiny in San Francisco. Lame. More foreshadowing. It was all set up that way from the beginning. So Jones moved his entire congregation again. Their first move was due to the threat of nuclear annihilation. Their second because not enough spooks or gullible people could be pooled in Ukiah. Their third because in San Francisco, the politicians were nice but the press was naughty. Jones is advertised to us as the sort of person who never seems satisfied unless the United States president we're personally calling him up on the phone from the Oval Office. The pond is otherwise always too small. What he needs is more people to applaud his fake healings, which makes the move to Jonestown completely irrational in every way imaginable. But again, we know the real reason. They needed a lockdown movie set. Jones furthermore sold the final move to his congregation by terming the word translation by which he and his followers would all die together and move to another planet to live blissfully once they were in Jonestown. Sure. I'll say it again, kids. The lesson here is stay in Rome. The logistical problem of moving an intel project away from the Langley-operated city of San Francisco is that it is now no longer capable of being fed to the masses via media scrutiny, when the entire point is something alchemical in nature. That is why, in the autumn of 1977, 
former temple members formed a concerned relatives group due to the fact that they still had family members in Jonestown. This is precisely how they kept the Jones story alive in the American consciousness, but it did better. The cruel physical separation of loved ones, husbands from wives, and parents severed from their children allowed the concerned relatives group to sear the narrative into a serial drama, something to invest and hang one's emotions upon. In this way, they built attention to the inevitable. It's all psychodrama. At a rally attended by Harvey Milk and assemblyman Art Agnos, Willie Brown spoke out against anybody who stood in opposition to Jones. This is how they legitimized the concerned relatives, by creating the necessary opposition. But it gets better. Wiki writes, On February 19, 1978, Milk wrote a letter to President Jimmy Carter defending Jones as a man of the highest character. And he claimed that escaped Temple members were trying to damage Reverend Jones' reputation with apparent bold-faced lies. Highest character. Did I get that right? Sure. Do you see how difficult it is for me to maintain a calm demeanor while clapping away upon the keyboard? Willie Brown later stated, If we knew then he was mad, clearly we wouldn't have appeared with him. A show of hands, is anybody still buying that? Remember, Intel is pulling out all the stops. Communism is involved. The civil rights is involved. LGBTQ is involved. The Nation of Islam and the Black Panthers are involved. The White House is involved. Gandhi is involved. In 1978, Jones then hired conspiracy theorists Mark Lane and Donald Freed to help make the case of a grand conspiracy against the temple by U.S. intelligence agencies. This was, of course, to draw even more emotional investment into his PSYOP. Jones told Lane that he wanted to pull an Eldridge Cleaver, referring to a fugitive member of the Black Panthers who was able to return to the U.S. after initially damaging his reputation. So, more paid actor references. Otherwise, this is all news to me. I had absolutely no clue that conspiracy theorists were for hire until now. Where is my pay? Then again, no truly woken individual would ever call themselves a conspiracy theorist, as the term was coined by the CIA in 1967 to disqualify anyone who questioned the official version of the John F. Kennedy assassination. I decided to look into Mark Lane, and this is what I found. Earlier that very year, Lane had represented James Earl Ray, the assassin of MLKJ, before the House Select Committee on Assassinations Inquiry, alleging that Ray was an innocent pawn in a government plot. What does that tell you right there? And I've stated it before. Langley not only coined the term conspiracy theorist, they planted them among our ranks. Like the media, they drop intel. Whereas the media disseminates lies, paid conspirators spread truth. But only in such a way that it can be controlled and used as leverage for the opposing prerogative. Beginning in September 1978, with only two months to go before the Kool-Aid incident, Lane arrived in Jonestown. His conclusions were that there was a massive conspiracy against the temple by intelligence organizations, which included the CIA, FBI, FCC, and the U.S. Post Office. Temple members wrote concerned relatives in the states, excitedly informing them about the conspiracy theorists who were making a case on their behalf. 
Wiki adds, the temple paid Lane $6,000 per month to help generate such theories. And once again, we need to stop right there because the Wikipedia is dispensing truth, but doing so in such a way as to spread disinformation. They want to discredit Lane based upon the fact that he is getting paid to play a role and tell a story when in fact everyone involved is getting paid to do the very thing. Even actors gotta eat. Mark Lane's role is to discredit anyone who opposes the unfolding narrative while spreading intellectual goop. Mostly, he was there simply to make truthers look retarded. In a letter to Congressman Leo Ryan, whom we shall turn to next, Lane had already drunk the Kool-Aid. Do you see what I did there? Because as an apparent spokesperson for Reverend Jimmy, he threatened to move the People's Temple to the Soviet Union. Ridiculous. Lane was present in Jonestown on November 18, 1978. Late in the afternoon of that day, two men wielding rifles approached Lane and Gary. Whether they were sent to kill Lane and Gary is unknown, but here Wiki adds, one of the gunmen recognized Charles Gary as an attorney in a trial that the gunmen had attended. Of course he did. What trial the gunmen attended, we are not told, but it may have been any one of the following. In the 1950s, Lane defended targets of McCarthyism, actors. In the 60s, he defended students who clashed with police in San Francisco City Hall while meetings of the House Committee on Un-American Activities were held. More actors working up the crowd. He represented the Black Panther Party on multiple occasions, specifically Black Panther leader Bobby Seale, one of the Chicago Seven, after the 1968 Democratic National Convention PSYOP. The more likely scenario is that Intel is connecting the dots for us between one stage performance and another. The improv from the crisis actor Gunman is simply there to tell us what a small world it truly is. Both Lane and Gary were, rather conveniently, allowed to slip into the jungle. I have previously mentioned that very few non-government civilians were present after Jonestown, and here we have two of them. What a joke. Gary died in 1991, but even years later he was still haunted by the betrayal of Jones and the violent end to what he thought was a paradise free from racism and sexism. The message is clear. Jonestown was intended to castrate everyone on the plantation. Another connection to the Patty Hearst kidnapping hoax, aside from the brief contribution from Cecil Williams, is Congressman Leo Ryan, who was still collecting signatures on a petition for Hearst's release when he was sent on a mission to Jonestown to investigate allegations of human rights abuses. See what I mean? Two separate character actors in the same Intel movies. Wiki writes, his delegation included relatives of Temple members, an NBC camera crew, and reporters for various newspapers. Of course a Jewish-run camera crew arrived for the production. NBC loaned their film equipment out to Charlie Manson too, naturally. Jones then hosted a reception for the delegation upon the evening of their arrival, and all seemed dandy among the wives of Stepford. Well, sort of. This is, after all, a movie. The audience needs to see the twitch of the shadow and the crooked camera angle in order to feel as though their peripheral vision is off before the killer makes himself known on the other side of the window. It's how you build the tension. Alfred Hitchcock perfected the technique by designing a camera shot as simple as two people talking over dinner and then zooming in upon the ticking time bomb under the table. 
and then it happens. Temple member Vernon Gosney passes a note to one of the newsmen requesting that he and Monica Bagby become Jonestown's first two defectors. In occult thinking, two represents opposites, diversity, and conflict. In alchemy, we are given the imagery of the sun and the moon. It will do you well to remind yourself that everything about the Jonestown PSYOP screams of duality. From that moment forward, the Jim Jones movie switches gears from a D.W. Griffith religious epic or whatever to something akin to George Romero. Remember how Jim Jones criticized the Intel movie that was the McCartney communist hearings? That was a spin on Salem. Now we have communist zombies living out the John Lennon song while running amuck in the jungle, complete with the summer blockbuster tagline, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Temple member Don Sly turns on Ryan and attacks him with a knife, but not before he has first wrestled to the ground. In little time, Ryan and his delegation manage to escort 15 Temple members who had expressed a desire to leave. Why 15? Because 15 in the Major Arcana Trump deck is the devil, Uriel. But that is not to say the occult sees the devil as evil. On an esoteric level, the number 15 is a reflection of the basic animal instincts within us, reflected in Greek and Roman mythology by the god Pan, and therefore represents the duality of our base consciousness and our higher self. Do you see the internal struggle being presented here? As they board two planes at the nearby airstrip, Jones's nine armed guards, called the Red Brigade, arrive on a tractor and open fire. Only three Temple members, Joe Wilson, Thomas Keis Sr., and Ronnie Dennis, are identified among the nine. The number nine card is the Hermit, which tells us of treason, dissimulation, roguery, and corruption. In reverse, concealment, disguise, fear, and unreasoned caution. The gunmen kill Ryan and four others. So, five victims. The number four represents justice, but with five, we are given the sum of two plus three, a combination of duality, male and female blended, marriage and captivity. Only defector Larry Layton is able to draw a weapon and return fire. An NBC cameraman was able to capture footage of the first few seconds of the shooting. Just enough footage to showcase the CIA PSYOP to the world without exposing it for the bloody hoax it really is. Quoting Wiki, The five killed at the airstrip were Ryan, NBC reporter Don Harris, NBC cameraman Bob Brown, San Francisco examiner photographer Greg Robinson, and Temple member Patricia Parks. Surviving the attacks were Jackie Spear, a Ryan staff member, Richard Dwyer, Deputy Chief of Mission from the U.S. Embassy, Bob Flick, an NBC producer, Steve Sung, an NBC sound engineer, Tim Ritterman, a San Francisco Examiner reporter, Ron Javers, a San Francisco Chronicle reporter, Charles Krauss, a Washington Post reporter, and several defecting Temple members. They're all spooks or intel actors selected to carry the story forward. The dead could now carry on about their business. We have already seen how Dr. Hardot Sakdio was the first to arrive on the scene, a counterpart to Rabbi Maurice Davis. Sakdio began reading from the mass suicide script within hours of his plane touching down in Georgetown without ever having physically visited the scene of the crime in the jungle, despite intended leaks by Dr. Leslie Mutu, 
claiming otherwise. As the Guana government's leading pathologist, Mutu concluded that more than 700 of the 911 persons, there it is again, 911, who died at the People's Temple in Jonestown were murdered. This of course is a setup, misinformation, bait intended for conspiracy theorists who are likely to question the narrative and prefer the illusion of choice. It's like the second shooter with Kennedy. The government introduced the magic bullet theory in order to send theorists like Mark Lane, wink wink, hounding after the wrong happy bunny trail when in fact Kennedy was never killed at all. At any rate, it is here where Dr. Lewis West once again enters the narrative. You were probably wondering what happened to him, but I haven't forgotten the man of the hour. Another familiar name is Dr. Margaret Singer. She and West were brought in to echo Sakdio's account of things, and from here the mass suicide without resistance narrative was drummed into the public consciousness. That is, unless you preferred the illusion of choice in which a mass murder is easily believed. Choose your position, either or. Both are government endorsed. The fact that West and Singer had been parroted to the witness stand since the 1950s and in fact made a career of it, they were paid for their contributions in order to push MKUltra mind control theories should be a huge indicator as to the intended spill on the media guzzler. Singer, after undertaking mind control research in army medical facilities, was particularly responsible for popularizing the notion that new religious movements, rather than the old ones, aka Rome, brainwash people. So there you go kids. The message again is, stay in Rome. And by the way, the majority of Jonestown survivors were treated at the Langley Porter Institute. This was done at the request of San Francisco Mayor George Moscone, who was assassinated only nine days after the Jonestown massacre. Uh-huh. Returning everyone to San Francisco. This was most likely done because the Jonestown actors had been pulled from San Francisco to begin with. Actors would need to eat at a later hour. And get this, the Institute which is said to have conducted classified experiments for the Defense Department's Advanced Research Project Agency, aka DARPA, was hosted by none other than Margaret Singer. I checked. Jim Jones had been a patient at the Langley Porter Neuropsychiatric Institute. Jonestown advanced Lewis West's career in trampoline fashion. It is because of the mass suicide in Guana, we are told, that the Cult Awareness Network was formed of which West became one of its directors, together with his long-term research colleague, Margaret Singer. We are finishing up the fourth and final paper on the life of Colonel Lewis West, and by now, it should be made abundantly clear that he is simply a smokescreen. Sure, he conducted research. Some of it is dangled for us like a juicy carrot. Here's one of them. There is West's proposal to develop a remote behavior modification research center on a missile base where human experimentation would involve psychotropic drugs, electric shock, and chemical castration, right about the time in which the People's Temple moved to the jungle. Like Tusco the LSD elephant, was Jonestown another project of West? Sure, why not? But not as the suggestion is advertised to us. The CIA is always trying to convince us that they infiltrated a movement, when in fact there is nothing organic about Jim Jones to begin with. West and the CIA did not infiltrate the People's Temple. They created it from the beginning. The point has been well established already. Recognize the difference. Jonestown is predictive programming, plain and simple. They're passing around the Kool-Aid, but only in such a way as to reach through the television screen 
and hand them off to the nuclear family. We are next told about his conflict with Scientologist. It has already been established here at the Unexpected Cosmology that Scientology is another run-of-the-mill spook operation. According to West, Scientologists attempted to discredit him after his contributions to a 1980 textbook that classified Scientology as a cult. While participating in an American Psychiatric Association panel on cults, each speaker was intimidated into silence after receiving a letter threatening a lawsuit if Scientology were invoked. Only West referred to the letter in the cult, wherein he writes, I read parts of the letter to the 1,000 plus psychiatrist and then told any Scientologist in the crowd to pay attention. I said I would like to advise my colleagues that I consider Scientology a cult and L. Ron Hubbard a quack and a fake. I wasn't about to let them intimidate me. More actors, the show must go on. Speaking of which, Wes headed the American Psychological Association trauma response team that rushed to Oklahoma City in the wake of the 1995 bombing of the Murrah Federal Building. He then visited Timothy McVeigh as many as 12 or more times in prison. More MKUltra programming? Nope. McVeigh was diagnosed like the others. It's Jack Ruby, Sirhan Sirhan, and Patty Hearst all over again. Intel simply needed the same people involved in practically every PSYOP to keep a lid on it and steer the ship into the 21st century. Because loose lips sink ships. And start wars. Unless you're the Titanic, which never really sank at all. After Oklahoma City, West retired. Oh, and another thing. I'd nearly forgotten. West Cult Awareness Project played a major role in the siege of the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. Why am I not surprised? And you shouldn't be either.